Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you. Thank you so much for joining. If you want to call in, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Got a lot to get into today. We will be discussing uh, North Korea here shortly. Also, the pre-dawn raid on former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort's home and what the uh, signals that's sending are. We'll also talk a bit more about affirmative action and the administration's looming battle with the leftist progressive establishment on that issue. Talk to you about the... uh, Iranian support to the Taliban that's gotten into the headlines recently, and also we will discuss the opioid epidemic, and at the end of the show, I've got some uh, some buck thoughts to share with you about just some things. So uh, that's, the, that's the basic roadmap of what we're going to get into today. I don't know if we'll have time today for the uh, possible privatization, as it's being called, of the war in Afghanistan. I talked to you about Afghanistan, um, yeah, well... I'll, I'll talk to you about what's going on with the Taliban and Iran. I guess privatization will probably wait until tomorrow or the next day. Um, and also this interesting story coming out of the Associated Press and and Cuba, uh, allegedly involved in some plot or some someone in Cuba thought that it would be, uh, I, I don't know, I decided to get even with the Americans by trying to deafen some of our diplomats with a sonic weapon of some kind. This is what the Associated Press is reporting. First that I saw it was today. So we'll have some time for that. But back to North Korea. I should note that um, there are uh, a lot of people right now, a lot of reporters uh, who are treating Trump's rhetoric on this issue as though it is completely outside the mainstream and and that he's uh he is so much more bellicose and it's we should all be so concerned but let's understand that whenever a president says something like all options are on the table or there is a credible threat of military force that is what they are discussing right they're discussing the uh the terrible the horrific possibility of war with a foreign nation whether whether it was Iran in the past or any number of other countries where there had to be a credible threat of military force or else what are we even talking about? What's the purpose of the uh, various sanctions and discussions and diplomacy if there's never the possibility that we might have to actually fire some missiles and some guns, uh, then these countries won't obey at all. These rogue states will certainly not come to heel. That's not going to happen. So you had the State Department uh, having a conference today. I have to say, uh, the new State Department spokeswoman uh, did a did a really good job, um, and she's I know she comes from from Fox, and she's impressive. I always thought she was impressive at Fox, 
Uh, but here's how this is going. They're, they're trying to tell everybody, look, this is a problem that has to be dealt with now. Uh, we, we should be concerned about this. As people look at this, and some consider uh, comments to have been alarming, uh, I would have to go back to this. Let's consider what is alarming. What is alarming, two ICBM tests in less than a month, two nuclear tests that took place last year. As a matter of fact, when there's an earthquake in China, I get many emails and calls from all of you asking, was it another nuclear test? That is how big of a deal this is. Like I said, she did a very good job, but I want to point out that when she's talking about rhetoric, she's referring to, at least in part, the media's reaction to the president's rhetoric, that there will be you know, fire and fury, that there will be the full might of the United States military uh, deployed against North Korea if North Korea continues with its uh, aggressive actions, and and if we're if it were to consider a a first strike, there was reporting yesterday that Guam has come up that they might hit Guam. Now the calculation there for North Korea may be that they would respond, but they would not respond with their full force and fury if it was not the U.S. mainland. I think they would be wrong in that, but you're you're seeing that the reason they would put Guam out there is that it at least at first. Sounds like it is a more likely action for North Korea if it decided to lash out than just firing missiles at you know California or not, not that Guam is not U.S. territory and there's U.S. military there. But I think that's the North. The North Koreans are trying to make it seem like the North Korean media is trying to make it seem like there's a greater possibility they might actually do something. Maybe they don't fire a, you know, a nuclear missile, but maybe they just try to try to hit Guam with some of their long range missiles just to make a point. Uh, and they know there'd be a response, but who who knows what their calculations are? And this is, by the way, when I hear people talking about North Korea, I, I understand that when you're on TV or, yes, when you're on radio or you're writing about things, it's it's usually a uh, a good plan to at least give off an air of certainty. You know, you try to seem like you're confident in everything you're saying. People have no uh, people have no idea how Kim Jong Un is going to react. People have no idea what his real end goal is here for all of this that's going on in North Korea. And and when you're talking about somebody who lives in this, what is truly an alternate reality, an alternate universe, someone who would allow his or call for his own brother to be assassinated abroad, you know, this is an, an unstable individual, rational to an extent, to be sure, but what is what is rational when you're the dictator of North Korea is not rational if you're a normal person in the rest of the world. So we have uh, real concerns here about this. But you'll notice that some of the media is more worried about Donald Trump, as though Donald Trump, when it comes to North Korea and the nuclear program, is the problem. This is this is very telling. You know, you, you can see a lot of who the media really is when it comes who they are uh, when it comes to how they're more worried about Trump sounding uh, sounding too stern vis-a-vis North Korea than the reality of North Korea, which is that it is working at its fastest pace possible to expand its missile program and its uh, nuclear nuclear weapons program. So you've got Secretary of State out there letting everybody know that we shouldn't be overly concerned about this, and I mean, I certainly agree with that sentiment. I think Americans should 
sleep well at night. I have no concerns about uh, this particular uh, rhetoric of the last few days. I think the, the president, again, uh, as commander-in-chief, I think he felt it necessary to issue a very strong statement directly to North Korea. But I think what the president was just reaffirming is the United States has the capability to fully defend itself from any attack and defend our allies, and we will do so. And so the American people should sleep well at night. Now, uh, I I think that that's important for everyone to to take note of here. You know, we don't want to give in to the, the, the scare tactics of the uh, nightly news, um, the idea that we are all, we all need to be afraid of, you know, North Korea needs to be dealt with. It's a real problem. It does pose a realistic threat uh, to, well, to the United States, to global markets, to our allies, to its neighbors, uh, you know, most notably South Korea and Japan. Although I think China's probably getting a little nervous these days about North Korea, too. They got to be thinking, whoa, this is, you know, Frankenstein may turn on me. This is not good. Although, as we know, Frankenstein was the doctor, not the monster. But you know what I'm saying? Uh, so that's that's a possibility. But you've got the much of the media out there deciding to run with this because the anxiety, if they create enough of a climate of anxiety around this, it can then also be used to make it seem like Trump can't keep us safe, that he's erratic, that who knows what's going to happen here. And, you know, there's North Korea is a very serious problem we have to deal with. And then there's, oh, my gosh, North Korea could nuke us tomorrow because Trump is a maniac. And that's what a lot of the media is trying to go with. That's what the storyline quickly uh, becomes. Here's here's what's going on over at CNN and MSNBC. Our job tonight actually is to scare people to death on this subject. Another potential target within Kim Jong-un's range is Hawaii, which is where Sarah Seidner is live tonight. She's inside a bunker in Honolulu, which houses the emergency operating center's state warning point. How long would it take to go from launch to strike? Just 20 minutes. The level of destruction in the region in any kind of conflict between North and South Korea that the U.S. is involved in and China gets involved as well. I mean, it's it's not something that the United States has seen for a very long time, or frankly, that the, the world has seen. Don, this photograph purports to show Kim Jong-un with a miniaturized nuke, and if it's a real deal, this is what we can tell about it. It would be roughly two feet across, probably several hundred pounds. Are you scared yet? Ooh, spooky, scary. Are you frightened? Uh, look, this is a serious problem, but it's not time to hide under our desks at school, right? We're not going through that old Cold War hysteria again of you know, the, the, the drills uh, of what to do if, if there's you know a, a nuclear first strike. Hide under your desk. Not sure that would really keep too many people safe, but uh, this is this is part of the media reaction. And I should note this is also some of this is driven by anti-Trump ideology, but but there's also a component of it, to be sure, that's just the old, you know, tonight at 8 p.m., you know, is that thing you're going to make for dinner possibly lethal? We'll tell you right after this break. I mean, this is one of the oldest media tricks in the book. You know, fear sells. Uh, fear is a compelling story for people. You know, anything that makes people scared, I mean, there's actually a chemical reaction in your brain that occurs. Um, and some people, I think, become kind of addicted to it. It's one of the reasons why people like to go see scary movies, right? Because it, it hits certain sectors of the brain. There's brain activity when you're frightened that uh, there's like an endorphins release. Or I forget what the what the what the neurochemical reaction is. So, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little beyond my knowledge base. But I do know that that happens. 
But just as any story needs good guys and bad guys or it needs conflict and resolution, uh, with news stories, they like fear. And I, I think, unfortunately, too, too much these days is really just fear and anger. And I, I'm so much more concerned with with knowing and understanding and, and learning and being entertained. I, I don't do as much of the anger thing. I think it's interesting to hear there's so many radio shows across the country, and occasionally I'll catch some uh, by accident here or there. When I say by accident, I mean I'm, I'm looking for one and I find another or, you know, because I was a radio listener before I became a radio host. And I'm always amazed at just how angry how angry some people are all the time. I mean, I take these things seriously. I find progressives to be pretty odious. I think that there's some real conflicts that are within our own country that we have to resolve. And I do think North Korea is a very real threat, but I I just can't help but feel like it's been a real threat for a long time. And kind of like Russia, uh, the Democrats were silent on it until there's a Republican in office, and now it's, oh my gosh, we're all going to die. And in the case of Russia, of course, we're all going to die because Trump sold us out to the Russians. In the case of North Korea, it's just, oh, well, you know, this is a terrible problem that just came out of nowhere, man. Like, nobody could have seen this happening. No, some of us have seen this coming. Some of us have seen this coming for a long time. Uh, and I think it's important to understand and to, and to get a sense of what the probabilities are here that we'll have a real military exchange of some kind, a, a, a kinetic exchange. I'm trying to think of all the most gentle euphemisms for blowing up a lot of stuff and unfortunately killing a lot of people. Um, you've got Colonel Ralph Peters over at uh, Fox saying the following. I don't believe in threatening our enemies. I believe in killing them. Now, war should always be a last resort. But we are coming to the point in North Korea, because of the utterly botched diplomacy, because of the, our, the inanity of our approach to China on all this, that military conflict may become inevitable primary reason for our government isn't Social Security or health care or anything else. It's to defend our people and our territory. So uh, I don't believe in threatening our enemies. I believe in killing them. It's a good it's a good one liner. Um, but it also in the context of North Korea is very complicated. Um, you know, I, there's there is no military. There is no military option that I can think of. And granted, I'm not I'm, I was never even before in my life in the government, and I'm not now a military planner for options to deal with North Korea, uh, but I, I do know enough of the basics to know that we're gonna, we would have to kill a lot of people to take out, uh, take out that whole apparatus, that military apparatus in North Korea, and then we might lose, at a minimum, a, many, many South Koreans in the process. Here's, my, here's what I'm going to say to you, though. I don't think we're there yet, meaning I don't think that's about to happen. I think this is going to fall out of the headlines. I think that within a few days, you'll see other stories getting a lot more attention and will return to the status quo with North Korea. Now, the status quo is eventually unsustainable. And I do think that we are heading towards a path that uh, could lead to a very, very frightening place for us. But we have some time, so we should think about it and be... Uh, be as, as sanguine as possible when discussing the possibility of taking out a nuclear power, um, because that's really what we're talking about here. And let's not allow the uh, the leftist media to act like this is all because Trump is so crazy. No, no. Kim Jong-un is the crazy one, and there are no good options for dealing with this right now. All right. I, I got to talk to you about why is the FBI raiding Manafort's home before dawn? That's That's some pretty intense stuff. Why are they doing it? Well, I'll tell you, and we'll have an expert to join as well in just a few. Stay with me.
So you've got the Washington Post reporting that Paul Manafort's home. Well, let me just tell you what they report, and then we'll talk more about it. And we got Andy McCarthy, uh, who's uh, one of the, one of the best guys out there on the scene when it comes to anything federal, criminal, legal related. Uh, and you know, he's also just a, a super nice and, and humble guy. I'm a, I'm a Andy McCarthy fan. Um, but anyway, here's what's the, written in the Washington Post. FBI agents raided the Alexandria home of President Trump's former campaign chairman late last month using a, se- a search warrant to seize documents and other materials, according to people familiar with the special counsel investigation. Federal agents appeared at Paul Manafort's home without advance warning in the pre-dawn hours of July 26th, the day after he met voluntarily with the staff for the Senate Intelligence Committee. Oh, uh, this is not this does not look good. Now, it should be noted, as many others have probably already said, that this does not mean that Donald Trump has done anything wrong. This does not mean that there is anything that we should be looking at here and saying, oh, they're they're on to Trump and his people. I have told you from the beginning, my concern about the special counsel is not that it will find wrongdoing by Trump. If that were the case, I would actually be okay with it. But I'm, I would be absolutely shocked if there was anything that they found with regard to Trump himself and Russia collusion. I mean, I think that's a that's a one in a thousand shot would be my estimation right now. Uh, but when the special counsel, when federal prosecutors decide that they're going to find somebody and they're going to just they're going to find a crime. People who don't know the law don't have any understanding of this. I I worked in law enforcement for a short time, but also worked in the federal government, have had a lot of interactions with prosecutors and federal prosecutors in the past. Um, And if they want to get you, they can get you pretty much. You know, there are some there are some key places they'll go. Your business interactions, uh, your taxes, obviously. If you've been speaking under oath in any capacity over time, they'll look for any misstatements. Uh, they'll, they'll, there's just, they'll find something they, they will look for something and they will find something. Now, is it enough to send you away to prison for the rest of your life? No, but is it enough that they can bring some charge against you? Very likely, especially when you're an individual like Manafort, who's been engaged in international political consulting and look, he's operating in, in some shady, in some shady places and probably doing some slightly shady stuff. Do I think that Manafort could be in I've said this to you b- before. I said this months ago. Do I think Manafort could be in trouble? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's working for a Russian-backed political party in Ukraine. Those guys don't mess around. They don't, you know, they don't, they don't play wiffle ball. They play hardball. Uh, so that would not surprise me in the least if there was a, a problem. Um, so it's, it's really possible here, I think, that you'll see some charges against uh, Manafort. But they will have nothing to do with Russia collusion. People are already saying, well, what about flipping Manafort on other people? Sure, that may be that may be something that happens. We don't know. Now we're just postulating, right? We're surmising. We're coming up with theories. But why would they do that unless there's something else? They don't even know what the something else is. Uh, I, I find this whole thing to be wasteful. And, and as somebody who is wary of government power, forget about the fact that, you know, I support the, the administration and President Trump. As somebody who's wary of government power, I am very wary of prosecutors without limitations.
He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. All right, everybody, the biggest news of the day, of course, is the FBI raid on Paul Manafort's home. We've got somebody who can walk us through all the most important points here, including what's really happening with regard to procedure and what uh, what analysis and conclusions can we take away from this whole matter. we got Andy McCarthy on the line. He's a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, best-selling author and contributing editor at National Review. Andy, great to have you back. Great to be here, Buck. All right. Well, just I, I want the the McCarthy hot take, as the kids say. Uh, right after you saw that there was this raid on Manafort by the Mueller probe, raid on his home, pre-dawn raid. What are your What are your thoughts? That you don't do a raid with a search warrant on the home of a cooperating witness. So, to me, the biggest takeaway is that Manafort has publicly projected that he's cooperating. His, he's got lawyers who have uh, not only said that, but uh, he evidently, the day before the search was done, Buck, I think the search was July 26th, on the day before that, interestingly, he voluntarily testified before the Senate Intelligence Committee, which, of course, is uh, something he didn't have to do. He could have taken the fifth uh, and dodged it. He didn't, and yet the very next day, they uh, not only... Uh, demanded evidence from him, but uh, even though Mueller apparently has a grand jury, which means he's got subpoena power, he could have issued a subpoena uh, instructing Manafort to surrender documents to the grand jury under compulsion. He evidently thought that was not good enough and had a search warrant obtained from a court, which means the FBI could show up at the guy's house, uh, demand entry, and and rifle through the place themselves to find what they were looking for. So, so just for everyone listening, so we're all clear, Andy, this is not pro forma, right? This is not, oh, well, you know, of course they were going to do this. This is a pretty aggressive prosecutorial step. Yeah, I mean, Buck, when, when you're dealing with somebody who's represented by lawyers and who is cooperating in the investigation, we're told that he not only was uh, open to being interviewed, that he's been Uh, giving documents, at least to Congress. Um, Generally speaking, uh, a prosecutor would issue a subpoena to the guy's lawyer saying, these are the documents we want you to turn over to us. The only reason you wouldn't do that, at least legitimately, is if you had a good faith belief that the guy would destroy the evidence if he knew you were looking for it, and therefore you couldn't trust him to turn it over, even under compulsion. You have to have the agents go out and seize it. Um, now the, you know, there's a second explanation that's not as uh, nice as the first. The first assumes in good faith, the agents believe the guy may destroy the evidence. The other is that they're trying to intimidate him, which is, I was going to ask, is he sending a message here? Yeah, they're playing hardball when they don't have to. Um, and they're sending a message not only to him, but to everybody else in the investigation that they're, that, you know, this is for real and they expect people to tell them everything they know i mean to go in pre-dawn clearly it's to catch them at their uh at their most you know whoever's home manafort or anyone else they're they're least aware least likely to i don't think they thought there's going to be any resistance but they're sort of more slow moving harder for them to get that one last sprint into the office to get into the desk drawer to destroy that hard drive or whatever it may be so there's there's a lot of 
um, a lot of implications, and, and you're telling me those implications seem pretty pretty spot on as to what we can think about this. But I want to ask you if you think that part of this may be that they are, and this will uh, go into our, our next dis- part of discussion as well, which is, you know, where is all this going? Are they trying to flip him? You, you think that they may be trying to get him with just anything, m- at least make him nervous enough that maybe he's more cooperative, and then we'll tell them whatever they whatever they want to find out about anybody else in this investigation. Do you think that's possible? Is that likely? Well, Buck, look, anybody who's not the ultimate target of your investigation, you always want to flip. Um in this investigation, we're dealing with prosecutors who have a uh, long and documented history of being very good, but very aggressive. And, uh, you know, one of the ways that you flip somebody early in time and, uh, you know, try to get your investigation moving in the direction you want to move it in uh, is you squeeze them very hard. And, you know, look, there's, there's a couple of different ways of going about this, right? We saw 10 star, uh, back in the 90s, did the dance with uh, with Miss Lewinsky for about eight months, right? And by the time she finally uh, rolled, he was in a very different posture. I think, you know, hard-nosed prosecutors, as opposed to the kind of lawyers who, you know, specialize in briefs to the Supreme Court, um, don't play the game that way. They, you know, if they, if they have you over a barrel uh, and they have targets that are up the chain from you, uh, they squeeze you to get uh, what they're looking for. How easy is it, by the way, or, or how does the decision get made? Or what are the guidelines for somebody like uh, Manafort? Just theoretically, let's say they got him on something that's, you know, uh, I don't know. They have him on like a tax a tax evasion charge. That's what they find from all this. But they really want to know about some meetings that some other Trump associate had. Can they basically say to him, uh, you know what, you, you tell us everything we want to know, and you're, you're honest about everything about this other stuff, we make that tax evasion charge go away? Or is that just in the movies? You know what I mean? Is, does that actually happen like that or is it usually we'll give you something less yeah something like that does happen but it's it's at least in my office it wasn't uh, that way what you would normally do because the sentencing guidelines are very much in favor of the prosecutor here um what they what they are is pretty severe in cases where you've committed a serious crime but the escape hatch is if you cooperate with the government the judge can give you uh, no time or a very short period of time, but the escape hatch is you have to cooperate. So what you would usually do is try to build an airtight case on somebody and then say to them, look, you're only out here is to plead guilty and cooperate. Plus, from a prosecutor's standpoint, a witness who has pled guilty to a crime is a much more attractive witness than somebody you've given a walk to. Speaking to Andrew McCarthy, he is a best-selling author, contributing editor at National Review. He has a few pieces up on the whole uh, investigation with Mueller and uh, the raid on Manafort's home. Paul Manafort was the campaign chairman for Donald Trump before he was fired last summer uh, or a year ago. Uh, Andy, what about Rosenstein and his—I know you've written about this on National Review—his failure to defend— well, he fails to defend his failure to limit Mueller's investigation. Tell me about this. Well— the regulation, Buck, for appointing a special counsel requires the Justice Department to to state what the factual basis is for a criminal investigation that the Justice Department is, uh, is conflicted from participating in, and that's the reason that you have to have the prosecutor in the first place. Uh, Rosenstein didn't do that. So what, you know, ordinarily what happens is there's a crime and you assign a prosecutor, and if 
the prosecutor you have has a conflict of interest that prevents him from being an appropriate prosecutor to investigate that crime, uh, then you get a special counsel. What the Justice Department did in this case was they appointed a special counsel without outlining a crime, and they basically have unleashed him to go find crime. Right. So there's no there is no specific there is no limitation for what they can look at here because it, it's open ended right now. By the way, that for, for people who uh, are, are, are watching this closely there, this is unusual, right, to start an investigation of this scope and scale without a single specified crime as the basis of the investigation. That is not normal procedure, right, Andy? That's exactly right. Now, let me ask you this. You were a prosecutor for a couple of decades. Andy was a federal prosecutor, everybody, here in New York, seen a lot of stuff. If uh, I'm just asking, I know you don't know Andy, and I know you're, you know you're not part of the investigation or anything, but just going on your gut, is Paul Manafort in trouble? Yeah, when they're, when they're searching your house and they show up, you look, look, here's one little tidbit that tells you everything I think you need to know. If, as the Washington Post reported, this, dawn, uh, this raid happened before dawn, uh, they would have had to get permission from the district court uh, to serve a search warrant before six o'clock in the morning. And to do that, you basically have to tell the court, uh, it, it, you know, this is not a case, as you pointed out, where the agents would have felt at risk going through the door. Right. Um, so you basically probably have to tell the court, we think this guy would destroy documents. That's why you have to let us, you know, basically get in before everybody's awake and alert. Um, that, that's not the posture that you take with somebody that you don't think is, uh, uh, in some trouble. See, I think that's very, I think that's very interesting, Andy, because if it was just a show of force, so to speak, they could have sent the agents, you know, around whatever, 10 a.m., 2 p.m., just showed up and said, okay, we're going through your house. But the pre-dawn aspect of this, as you're telling me now, that's even a level beyond. That's... Yeah. Now I'm I'm assuming that the Washington Post has accurately record, uh, reported that it's a pre-dawn raid, um, and that you know even if they didn't get permission from a court to do it under pre-dawn circumstances, again conveys the idea that they think the guy would destroy evidence. The other thing I think is interesting, Buck, is the one crime out there that people think or seem to think that uh, Manafort may have a real problem with is the failure to register as a foreign agent for work that he did for uh, this party in Ukraine. And the reason I think that's interesting is evidently the Justice Department has prosecuted that as a crime exactly four times in the last 10 years. Most of the time when people violate that, they just send them a letter and tell them you better register. Wow. What do you think happens if at the end of this, all they have is that on Manafort? I think then then this whole then the whole Manafort frenzy right now seems pretty over the top. Well, it does play into I mean, I'm not using the words uh, witch hunt that that the president uses, because uh, I really hope Mueller's not doing that. But I have used the, the term fishing expedition because I don't think there's any limit to this. If it turns out that they're trying to squeeze him on a nonsense crime because they're, they're trying to make a case on the president. Um, then I think, you know, Trump probably has a point when he says witch hunt. Andy, uh, last one for you. I just, at, at this stage of the game, uh, 
is is Mueller we hear so much and you know the media of course has this lens of whether they like somebody or don't that's whether they're honorable and good at their job or not but you know these people all by reputation you know a lot of them personally mm-hmm. is is Mueller really a, is he beyond reproach in terms of his integrity and honor when it comes to discharging his duties as a prosecutor or investigator I think Buck that every I think that Mueller is a very honorable guy and a great patriot I also think that the brilliance of our system is that we don't rely on anybody being a good guy. We hope they are, uh, but we, we try to keep them within the guidelines. And what I worry about here is there aren't any guidelines. You know, the Justice Department is supposed to set parameters on this investigation. They haven't. Um, once you're in the heat of the battle, even if you're an honorable guy, uh, if you think that you have an open warrant to go find a crime on someone and you start to legitimately go through evidence, um, you're going to look for a crime. Uh, so it was really incumbent on the system to keep Mueller honest. And I'm not suggesting that he's dishonest, but the Justice Department should have given him an investigative warrant that had strict parameters of what crimes he was allowed to investigate, which wouldn't have prevented him from investigating new crimes if he found new evidence, but he would simply have had to go back to the Justice Department and ask for his warrant to be expanded. That's the way it's supposed to work. And here it seems to me that they didn't do anything of the sort. What they did was basically give him a blank check. And I don't care how honorable you are. I don't think anybody should get a blank check. Andy McCarthy, National Review. Everybody, check out his latest, nationalreview.com. You can follow him at Andrew McCarthy on Twitter. Andy, always great insight. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much, Buck. Team, we'll hit a break and be back with much more. Stay with me. We got Mark on uh, WFLA in Florida. What's up, Mark? Hey, Buck, how are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for calling in. Hey, thank you for having me. Listen, uh, I'll make it quick, and then I'll let you go so hear your response. But uh, as a child, I'm, I'm, I'm nearing my 50s. As a child, I grew up inside the Beltway in uh, suburban Virginia, you know. And I remember we only had three TV stations back then, you know, uh, ABC, NBC, CBS, and on the UH, UHF channel, PBS, you know? You remember this? Anyway. And I was the remote control. When my dad wanted me to ch- the channel changed, I was the guy that got up and changed the channel. So anyway, I remember Walter Cronkite in the evening news every night, and that's the way it was on August, whatever today's date is, you know, 2017. And then Dan Rather replaced him, you know? And uh, my dad wasn't a big fan of Dan Rather, even though we watched 60 Minutes religiously after football every Sunday evening. And I remember my dad getting just angry. Okay, Mark. (laughs) Yes? I'm listening. It's saying, okay, Mark. So so where are we going here? All right, all right, all right, all right. So my dad was a conservative. He, was not a, he, he even had a letter from Ronald Reagan. My, my pops was conservative as they come. But he and I, as I grew older, got into a uh, discussion one night about Nixon and the due process of Nixon and how that happened. And he, he, he didn't agree with it, but I did because Nixon lied, and, and that's that. So that's the standard or the bar of integrity. Okay? Yes, sir. I still believe, I still believe that. So when we're dealing with Manafort and President Trump, 
I understand that we need to te- keep this as integral as we can. But my question to you is, is where was this standard when Hillary Clinton met on the, you know, or Bill Clinton met on the tarmac with uh, Lynch? Where was the standard in, God forbid, Benghazi? Why is it now we have real investigative processes? Well, I, I actually tweeted out earlier today that I, I certainly don't remember any pre-dawn FBI raids of Hillary Clinton's home, despite the fact that she was a serial violator, without question, this is beyond dispute, a serial violator statutes on the handling of classified information, national security information. Uh, so there, there was never a pre-dawn raid on Hillary's home, and she was very close to getting charged. So imagine if after this, by the way, they don't charge Manafort. What will that tell us about all of this? It'll show that well, this was a show investigation, and hopefully it doesn't lead to a show trial, uh, but we will see. Uh, we'll see, Mark. Yeah, there's a double standard for sure, and and I think that we'll see more of it play out, unfortunately. Thanks for calling in, man. Shields high. Uh, I should note before we go into break that there's some breaking news on North Korea. This is just going to add uh, more here. Um, you have the New York Post reporting that North Korea sets a mid-August deadline for attacking Guam. And the North Korean military is, quote, awaiting orders to unleash four missiles at military bases near Guam because officials believe President Trump is too bereft of reason for negotiations. The country's state-run media has just reported today. Uh, The U.S. president at a golf links again let out a load of nonsense about fire and fury, failing to grasp the ongoing grave situation, General Kim Rak-gyom said in a statement. This is extremely getting on the nerves of the infuriated Hwasong artillerymen of the KSA. Sound dialogue is not possible with such a guy bereft of reason, and only absolute force can work on him. Okay, well, that's what North Korea is saying here. Uh, it's, it's definitely an escalation of rhetoric for them to say that they think that, or that they have a deadline for taking some form of action against us uh, or against Guam and U.S. military bases. So we will have to continue to watch what's going on with North Korea. Uh, I still think it's very unlikely uh, that anything will really happen here. I just want to say that. But then again, a lot of people didn't think that Saddam would invade Kuwait. You know, that was that was crazy. Kennedy's not going to invade Kuwait. That's nuts. And then he did. And then we had a war. So sometimes the Uh, the unlikely does happen. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. We got Kenny in Boston on WKOX. What's up, Kenny? Hello, Buck. How are you doing? I just started listening to your show fairly recently. I've seen you a few times on TV, but I want to get right to the point. I don't want to have any dead air space here for you. So Andrew McCarthy, I believe was his name, was on just uh, recently on your show. Yeah, Andy McCarthy, just on. Right. So he provided an analysis of the Paul Manafort uh, pre-dawn raid, right? Mm-hmm. So I have a I have a couple of issues with that. It sounds like uh, the general takeaway that he wants you to have is that this is really serious, and you know they had to get a pre-dawn raid because it means that he was going to destroy evidence. 
which sounds logical. Um, well, can, can I can I just jump in? Andy wasn't saying that he thought that he was going to destroy evidence. He was just saying from the perspective of somebody with decades as a federal prosecutor, which is what Andy had here in the Southern District, which is a pretty rocking place to be a federal prosecutor here in Manhattan. Uh, he was saying that a prosecutor... Would ha- that's an elevated uh, request to go to the court with that because it's clearly more intrusive. And so they must have had to make that case to the judge because otherwise you would just show up at the house at, during normal hours. Uh, so, I mean, he, he's just telling you how this plays out. He's not saying that he thought that Manafort was trying to destroy things. I feel like you think that Andy was passing judgment on Manafort with that. He's just passing well, judgment well, think- on the process. I think that was the takeaway that I sort of got that not that he was necessarily saying that, but he sort of left me with that impression. Well, I think that's the right impression, if that's what you're saying. I mean, the impression is that it's an elevated. I mean, look, Kenny, if, if somebody if the police come and knock at your door and say, hey, Kenny, we'd like to talk to you. That's one thing. If a SWAT team comes and knocks your door down and says, get on the ground, that's another thing, right? <laughs> There's clearly somewhere along the line of different decisions have been made. Both of them are contact with law enforcement, but one requires a greater level of, well, obviously a greater level of, of urgency and force than the other, right? So there must have been some discussion behind the scenes. Do you see what I'm saying about how the process does tell us something? Well, I, I believe so, and I think some of the process is not really officially in the process, but I believe that was leaked out, wasn't it? In details of this raid, wasn't that leaked out? Yeah, I think that the the raid details were were leaked. Now, keep in mind uh-huh. that I'm assuming that you know Manafort doesn't live out in a, out on a farm in Virginia, you know, with with hundreds of acres of of pasture land around him. Mean, I'm assuming that when you're talking about this kind of situation, you're going to have FBI agents pulling up. Uh, lots of them, and they're going to be going through the house, and it's it's hard to keep that under wraps. To to be fair, I, I'm not sure if this is Mueller's team necessarily leaking it out, or this is just people are going to know, and so people know. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? I, I'm not, not clear to me right. which one of those is true. Well, do, uh, weren't other things though in Mueller's investigation uh, being leaked out? Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, there there have definitely been leaks okay. about. There was a leak about the grand jury, but again, that could be one of the grand jurors. That doesn't necessarily mean it's Mueller's office. And by the way, I'm not trying to run interference for Mueller's team. I'm sure Mueller's got people that are leaking stuff. I'm just saying I don't know if the raid was leaked or if it's just known. Right? I mean, you get you get eight government SUVs come screeching up to your house, and a bunch of dudes with FBI jackets come running in. Like people are gonna know. That is correct. But what is the um, uh, how do we know that they didn't set it up to make it to specifically get a pre-dawn raid to make it appear as if Manafort was going to destroy evidence? Well, 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 I asked Andy about that. I said, is this sending a message? And he said, yeah, it could be. I mean, this may be trying to uh, show everybody who's a target of the investigation or who's involved in this Russia collusion investigation, which keep in mind, we still don't even have a crime to speak of, right? We can't even say this is the, you know, this is the, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to think of what it, what it could be. You know, this is the failing to register as a foreign agent act registration or something. I mean, who knows? We don't even know what it is. Um, but it may be that the Mueller team decided to do this to put everybody else on notice that you can give your interviews to the media, you can go testify before Congress, do whatever you want, but if we still want stuff, we're coming to get it, right? So that may be the case. Now, it also may be the case that I put pressure 
from a public relations standpoint on some of these people that, you know, you better cooperate and talk or else you're going to be the next one to get the FBI, you know, knocking on your door at 5 a.m. Because, you know, look, that's really you put yourself in the shoes of Paul Manafort and I don't know if his family was there or not. But that's it's startling. Right. It's uh, you know, you, you take notice of a bunch of guys coming to your door saying we're in the midst of a criminal investigation. Stand aside while we go through all your stuff at 5 a.m. That's that's some uh, that's frightening stuff for for a, a person to go through. There's just another, another target of this investigation and all these stuff. The target is the public through the media so that the people know that it's a pre-dawn raid and that, oh, he's probably destroying evidence. That is what they're trying to get out. In my mind, I think that's what's going on. And they leaked it out to make sure people know that. Yeah, there are definitely optics. There are definitely optics at play here, Kenny. And I think that it's it turns up the heat and it makes it seem like Mueller's people are not to be trifled with. I, I get it. And I, I think that's a very valid point. Thanks for calling in from uh, the beloved WKOX up in Boston. Great to hear from you, man. I want some more WKOX callers. I know you guys are listening up there and gals. You know, light up these lines. Got a lot of, a lot of Team Buck south of the Mason-Dixon lighting up the lines. Not as many folks up in the Boston area, you know. So just I'm just saying, you know, the, the South is carrying the carrying a lot of the weight here. Where where are you, my Northeastern team buck peeps? Um, let's get to uh, we have. Oh, do, well, anyway, um, I want to talk to you a bit. We've got some other lines lit, but I got to see what the uh, we're having some technical issues with me seeing the uh, the names on the screen. Live radio being what it is that right now we've got a whole bunch of people calling and I can't necessarily know who it is. So we'll get to them. And if you're on hold, stay with me for a second. We'll get we'll get your name going and uh, we will get to your call because I have a, a follow up. I think a really interesting one. Of course, I think it's really interesting, right? Because I'm going to talk to you about it. Oh, wait, two follow ups uh, Two. I wouldn't they're not mulligans because I didn't miss the first shot, but they're yeah, they're round two. They're sequels. Like the Al Gore sequel um, to an inconvenient truth. I'm going to have to talk. We're going to have to do Al Gore tomorrow. I've been meaning to get to Al Gore all week. We will get there. You know, with this, my movie is just not making the money that it should. Uh, It's 15th right now in the box office, which is... I think it made less than a million dollars, and I, I want to tomorrow. Maybe I'll upload the trailer. We got to do a whole. Th- I'm not going to get to it today, but I just a little teaser for tomorrow. We will get to. We have to save the planet. Uh, we, we'll get to Al Gore. We will, um, and I will work on my Al Gore impersonation a bit tonight. So, uh, oh, a couple things. One is that the New York Times had to retract, and I, I mentioned this on air yesterday, but I just want to note. That they get so snippy whenever you bring up fake news or the president says anything about uh, fake news, they get so nasty about it. And yet yesterday you had uh, the New York Times running with this whole story about how government employees were leaking a climate change report because they want to save the planet. Uh, They're leaking a climate change report because they're worried the Trump administration is going to destroy, going to suppress it. Turns out that it was public for months. Now, I know that they would say that this is a good faith error, but it's a pretty blatant error, isn't it? Seems to me that this falls in the category of errors you make when you have an agenda and you're trying to hurt the administration and you hate the administration. So there's a big, if it's not fake news, it's false news. And this was pretty bad. Um, So 
Let's. Oh, now I got. Oh, we got a bunch of. Oh, look at this. Lines all lit. Thank you so much, team. Wayne in Mississippi, WBUV. Hey, Wayne. Yeah, Buck. Thanks for taking it, buddy. Thank you. Uh, I would. Yeah, sir. I'd like to know though. Wasn't Mueller in charge of the FBI when Obama, uh, little Hugo, we call him down here, Chavez, little Hugh, uh, little Hugo, put him. Uh, Put this Muslim terrorist or Muslim Brotherhood guy up there, going through all the laws and uh, uh, statues or whatever. That anything that reta- uh, that uh, went back to Islamic terrorists and how they've been with us, uh, well, since the beginning, you know. If if uh, what what my point is, Buck, is if Mr. Mueller was so good and loved his country, and he was the director of, of the FBI at that time, why in the world would a man like that who loves his country? And his job, and just cares for America, sit there and let that uh, uh, Muslim Brotherhood stay there. I don't know. Are, are you talking, Wayne, about about the scrubbing of uh, teaching materials inside of FBI and law enforcement to get rid of any references to radical Islam or to? Exactly. Bro. Yeah, I, I remember being at the NYPD and doing some doing some uh, unclassified terrorism training stuff. These modules they'd bring in these uh, different groups to train us on stuff, and I was always amazed at at how there there were all these. We're always worried about about a white supremacist uh, bombing somewhere. That was all of our security modules. Was like so, you know, a guy named Bob yeah. is trying to blow up the local federal building because he hates America. I'm like, so this is the, I'm in the counterterrorism unit. This is what we're looking at. Okay, I guess. So I, I had to live it, Wayne. I, it wasn't just I read about it. I had to go through it. Uh, and, yeah, I don't know what Mueller's role was or, you know, I don't, I don't know if he ever even got involved, to be honest with you, in the scrubbing of, uh, of FBI training material references radical Islam. But it's a it's a question that I could say I'll, uh, I will look into some more. And I appreciate you calling in, man. Shields high. Tom in Ohio, WWVA. Hey, Tom. Yeah, look, you know, th- this to me is just another extension of this whole scenario of uh, Rosenstein uh, colluding with uh, Mueller and colluding with Comey. Uh, in other words, uh, getting uh, uh, the special prosecutor in there, uh, special counsel. Uh, him uh, picking attorneys, the majority of which were uh, Democrats, were Democrat contributors, uh, and uh, to my understanding, no Republicans, uh, picking a grand jury in Washington, D.C., uh, which voted 94% for Hillary and uh, only 4% for Trump when there was already one convened in uh, Andrea, uh, uh, Virginia, uh, Alexandria, Virginia, excuse me. And, uh, you know, it's just just the, the uh, pre-dawn raid is to give the idea, boy, we've got to get this guy here. He's going to do something. In other words, it creates an image uh, that, that they're right and uh, there's something there. Just like if, uh, if they were to say, well, the police went in, uh, guns drawn, even though no, nobody in the house had a gun. They knew they didn't have a gun. They knew there was the, no problem there. But there's just, the, as you say, the, the optics involved. And I, I really don't know why Jeff Sessions number one, has been so uh, impotent in terms of going after the Democrats, other than you know, maybe the fix is in. I mean, you know, maybe the whole idea... Hey, Tom, is, I, I, I've, been con- I've been consistent all along, right? You've been listening to the show. I said special yeah. counsel's a terrible idea. Jeff Sessions should not have recused himself. They're letting this monster get out of the cage, and they're not going to like where it goes. I've been saying this for months, and here we are. Uh, it's coming. The only thing that's missing is Judge Roy Bean. 
Remember Judge Roy Bean, the uh, only law west of the Pecos, the hanging judge, and his motto was uh, give him a fair trial and take him out and hang him? No, I don't remember it. I don't, but that's an interesting anecdote. I'm, I'm unfamiliar with that judge. But thank you for bringing it to my attention, Tom. Sure. Shield time, man. Thanks for the call. Uh, we are going to run into a break here. I got to talk to you about when science no longer counts as science. That's an article. Oh, that's coming. Because, of course, you have a, a PhD in biology writing about uh, women in technology and why there are differences between the employment rates of men and women in tech companies. So now they have to question this now that the science has to come into question, right? Or science in general and its ability to answer th- these questions. Uh, it's fascinating how this happens, right? Um, I'll, we'll, go, we'll go there. And, and we may actually have a, a, a quick North Korea expert update on what's going on. So uh, a lot of show. Oh, and, and then we're talking affirmative action. A lot of show coming. I'll be back with you in just a few. Stay with me. All right, welcome back, everybody. I wanted to talk to you a bit more about North Korea and bring in an expert. We've got Gordon Chang, our friend, on the line now. He's the author of The Coming Collapse of China and Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Gordon, thanks for making the time. Thank you so much, Buck. Uh, so North Korea, in the latest reporting we see, Gordon says that there is now a deadline for a military response, and they're specifying Guam as a target. What do we make of this? Well, this is just North Korea just trying to try it on see how the United States reacts. I'm sure that Kim Jong-un, the ruler of North Korea, is concerned about what Trump will do. And he's probably using this as a measure of how the United States is going to react. Now, Secretary of Defense Mattis today said that uh, the North Koreans should stop these threats because they will end in the they will end in the destruction of the regime and the people of North Korea. And that is an indication that uh, the president's words indeed um, mean something, These uh, the idea of the fire and fury. Well, Gordon, what is, the, what is the main change in the last few days and last few months, perhaps, that has gotten people ac- across the political spectrum really so concerned about North Korea? Is, is it the, the credible threat of the ICBM with the nuke on top, or is it just the missile testing, a combination thereof? Why are, why are people now finally paying attention to this issue? Well, I think the accelerated missile testing has caught people's attention. And then when you add that to the notion that the North Koreans in about a year or so will be able to put a nuke on top of a missile that will reach the United States, that gives a deadline. Um, People have yet to really think about the critical issue, and that is, will we be able to deter North Korea? Can we live with North Korea just like we're living with now? That is going to the issue, the stability of the Korean state, whether Kim Jong-un can be deterred. Because if we determine that he has the ability to nuke us and that he is not deterred, then that argues for use of force. And the force could end up in history's next great conflict. So the issues can't be more important than they are now. Gordon, what would you say, just it, not not to make a counter-argument, but just to offer for consideration for those who would make the case, and I'm sure there will be some, that we, we sleep soundly at night even though Pakistan has nuclear weapons. Uh, why not just understand that North Korea is rational uh, at the leadership level, that even if they have a nuke, they're not going to be so crazy as to hit us without saying, oh, well, that's just wrong. What would one need to take into consideration to really understand the level of the threat 
or or the reality that we're living in once North Korea can hit the U.S. with a nuclear missile? What would you want that person to know and keep in mind? Two things. First of all, the North Korean regime doesn't look stable. Uh, you know, from time to time, we see these bouts of turbulence. And we saw one in January and February of this year where there were a number of events, including the assassination of Kim Jong-nam, the uh, ruler's elder half-brother, also the detention and the demotion of the Minister of State Security and the execution of five of his senior subordinates, plus some other things. Um, that indicates that maybe North Korea can't be deterred. Um, that's an important question, and there's a lot of learning on that, but just that's the issue. The second thing, and this is what really concerns me, and that is when Kim Jong-un feels comfortable uh, in his arsenal, when he feels invulnerable, he probably will try to use his nukes to blackmail the United States to break the treaty with South Korea to get our 28,500 service personnel off the peninsula so then he can then destroy the South Korean state. Um, the destruction of the South Korean state is the overarching goal of the Kim regime. Uh, it is the unification of Korea and the unification under Pyongyang's rule. So probably Kim Jong-un will do things that will end up um, increasing substantially the possibility of the next great war. Do you think there's a possibility, Gordon, that in the upper ranks of the North Korean military and political leadership, which is the same thing, uh, that they believe that if they were able to get the U.S. to withdraw troops, that they could uh, they could take South Korea quickly enough that the international community wouldn't really uh, want to try to change things back, wouldn't be that essentially they could make it a fait accompli and they could unify the peninsula? Do you think they believe that? I think that there's a real possibility that they believe that largely because although the South Korean military is extremely capable, it doesn't have weapons of mass destruction. It doesn't have chemical and biological agents, and it certainly doesn't have nuclear weapons. So the North Korean leadership, although it realizes there are many deficiencies to their armed forces, realize that they have the equalizer, and if they have China's uh, backing and permission, which they did, by the way, in 1950, then they might reasonably think that they can uh, absorb South Korea with a lightning military blow. Gordon Chang is the author of The Coming Collapse of China and Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. He's one of the very best analysts on this issue out there, guys. If you want to read more about it, check out his books and also go to gordonchang.com. Gordon, great to have you on. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Buck. Uh, I want to talk to you about when science is no longer really science or when science doesn't provide the answer anymore. Here's a hint. It has to do with the issue and the politics around it. Really has nothing to do with science. This Google memo has got people saying some interesting stuff. We'll talk about that and then affirmative action coming up here in just a few. Stay with me. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. I love coffee and my favorite coffee, no question, Black Rifle Coffee is delicious. It is phenomenal quality coffee. And not only are you getting a great product when you get Black Rifle Coffee, you're also 
putting your money where your morals, where your heart, where your beliefs are, because Black Rifle is owned and operated by United States veterans. They've got small batch and roast to order coffee, and they take pride in the incredible products they create. I've got Black Rifle Silencer Smooth Blend sitting right here on the desk. In fact, I made, well, I'm in the process of making cold brew with Black Rifle. I just talked to Miss Molly. We've got a little cold cold brew maker now because it's really hot this time of year in New York. So I'm going to be having Black Rifle cold brew style soon. That's the plan. That's how much I like it. It is phenomenal. So you should really check it out. And the best place to go is blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Use the coupon code buck10 for 10% off. Vote with your dollar. Fuel the revolution. Go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Use the coupon code buck10 for 10% off. Check it out. Black Rifle. It's a great company. And the guys are awesome who run it. And they do really cool social media stuff. And I think you will all be, uh, you all think um, it's great if you try it. So blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. So I said I was going to talk to you a bit about um, the... Google, the fallout from the Google memo, which continues on, I talked to you at length about it yesterday, and there's some really interesting stuff. I mean, for one, um, for one, uh, for one thing, I think that you um, you've got Nick Confessori. This guy writes for the New York Times, and he is uh, he puts out this stat that Google. Remember, they fired a guy for writing about their diversity programs. Google has spent. $265 million on diversity and recruitment and basically hasn't changed his workforce at all. $265 million on, quote, diversity, and it hasn't worked. So how do you spend... First of all, how do you even spend that much money on diversity? Think about that. And a, a very astute comment from Ross Douthit uh, from the New York Times. He writes, in response to this $265 million in diversity, it's almost as if... The main point of these efforts is not to achieve diversity, but to perform progressivism. He is absolutely correct. This is virtue signaling in the realm of corporate America. That's that's what it really boils down to. Uh, and that's what we see happening here. That's how you can spend all this money with no real change. And by the way, they're comfortable without there being real change because they don't really care. They just want people to think they care so much about diversity. I mentioned this piece, and I think I'm going to have to wait until... Uh, tomorrow to get into more details on it. But there's this piece written in Slate in reference to the whole Google memo situation. Stop equating science with truth. Evolutionary psychology is just the most obvious example of science's flaws. So they have a female scientist writing here about how science is not an answer for everything, that science is wrong sometimes, that science cannot be looked at as the the argument ender that some people want it to be. And I just want to go, wow, can they have this woman who's writing for Slate, who's a scientist, send a memo to all the climate change people who act like the science, who say the science is settled and it's definitive and there's no debate or discussion and it is the answer as if it comes from the almighty. I mean, that's that's the way they treat it. So I need to, so that is, in fact, um a story that I'll get into a little, uh, that's a story that I'll get into a little bit more tomorrow with you. I, I just think it's fascinating. Here we are. This the, the, They got a scientist writing about the differences between men and women and how it affects employment in one sector and looking at the science, looking at the peer-reviewed literature. And what are they telling us now? Well, you know, science isn't always like the answer, man. 
I, I guess not. I guess it isn't always the answer. All right, we're going to hit a break here. We'll be back with a discussion about affirmative action from somebody who intentionally gamed the system. How did he do it? We'll stay and you'll find out. Welcome back, team. I've been talking to you a lot about affirmative action and the administration's plans to look into whether there is discrimination in admissions for colleges, uh, universities, and from there, of course, it could expand into hiring practices as well. We're joined by somebody who made some waves on this issue and decided to put the diversity and multicultural uh, cult to the test here and see what would happen if he tried to game the system, openly so. We're joined by Vijay Chokal Ingam. He's an affirmative action hacktivist who got into St. Louis University Medical School by posing as a black man. Vijay detailed his misadventures uh, as a masquerading as a an African-American in his book, Almost Black. Vijay is the brother of actress Mindy Kaling from The Office. A little fun side fact there. Vijay, great to have you on. It's great to be on. You know, uh, I wanted to say that uh, you said whether or not the universities discriminate on the basis of race. And I almost laughed when you said that. When it comes to the issues of race, the universities have pleaded guilty as charged. Uh, They famously endorsed racial discrimination in the form of affirmative action, uh, the entire Ivy League and more than 100 universities in the Supreme Court's Fisher case. So there's no question whether they discriminate on the basis of race. The question is, to what extent? And is it justified? And, and also which which races, right? Or, or which side yeah. gets the no, benefit and which side gets the yeah. doubt? Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, uh, you, 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 uh, thank you very much for your introduction about my book, Almost Black. But, uh, you know, one of, in, this, in this particular context, the reason why it's come up lately is I actually work as an independent admissions consultant for InterviewSOS.com in Los Angeles and the SOS Admissions in Los Angeles, a new company. And so I'm well aware of the admissions data and, uh, but can you can you tell people listening, VJ, who who might not know the background to this story, what did you do? How did you become this oh, affirmative sure. action hacktivist? Tell us through, walk us sure. through the story. Oh sure, sure. Back in uh, back in 1999, I was a hard partying Indian frat boy. Uh, I realized I wasn't going to get into med school when all of my friends got rejected. So I came up with the scam of uh, shaving my head and trimming my eyelashes and joining the organization of black students. Uh, to get into medical school. And the reason I did that uh, was because I read statistical data from the American Association of Medical Colleges, uh, which showed that an Asian American applicant with my grades and test scores had a uh, very low chance of admission. Uh, If I did the same thing in 2015, a kid with my grades and test scores had an 18% chance of admission compared to an African American student with the same grades and test scores who probably had closer to a 76% chance of admission. So I realized that by Posing as a black man, I could improve my chances of getting into med school. Uh, then and you went by you uh, went by a nickname on your application, right? Or you changed the yeah, name I, on your application? So you changed your appearance yeah, and you changed your name. That, yeah, it happens to be my middle name is Jojo. So instead of calling me my, myself by my first name, which is VJ, I went my, by my last name Jojo. Uh, the other, you know, the the uh, the funny thing was, I managed to get waitlisted at the second and third best medical school in America, Washington University. I'm sorry, the third and fourth best 
at the time, Washington University and uh, University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and got into St. Louis University School of Medicine, uh, despite the fact that my pretty pitiful 3.1 GPA uh, was dramatically lower than uh, their average of 3.7. Uh, so that's kind of the, the crazy story of how I, how I got into uh, to medical school. Uh, the reason I keep bringing it up is because, you know, as you, as you were talking about in your intro, uh, it's really relevant uh, what's going on in the, in the government right now. And there's a lot of misinformation about there about what affirmative action is and how it works. And I'm trying to clear that up. So I apologize. Right. I, I, I want to get into some of those details. And you said that you're working with people now in the admissions processes as, as part, that's part of what you do. And so I want to hear about what that what it really is like in the trenches, so to speak, of trying to get into schools for different people. But before we get there, I just think it's worth noting that one of the reasons your story, other than it was such a clear, uh, you know, there were so many clear indicators that you saw what the game was in the system and you gamed the system and you did this openly and now you've talked about it. Uh, you do not have white privilege, VJ. Uh, you know, you, you your, your family, I'm assuming, you know, was was not uh, not not a part of the legacy of slavery in this country? And yeah, but to talk about it from that perspective, because as somebody who is non-white in this country but does not benefit, in fact, gets the negative end of affirmative action. I wanted to hear what you think. So it's it's so funny, you know. The the New York New York Times ran an article saying how white people benefit from affirmative action. It couldn't be, you know, white people are hurt by affirmative action. It couldn't be further from the truth. The real people who are hurt by affirmative action is Asian Americans. Um, you know, it, it's hardest to get into college and grad school as an Asian American. Uh, you know, the uh, I see that in my clients every single day. Uh, you know, uh, it's easy. I mean, the way it works is that it's easiest to, it's hardest to get in rather as an Asian American. It's second hardest to get in as a white person. It's third hardest to get in as Hispanic. And it's most easy to get in as an as a uh, African American. Uh, according to published data from the American Association of Medical College, I mentioned this earlier, uh, there's an 18% chance of admission if you're uh, to med school with a 3.1 GPA and 31 MCAT score if you're Asian. There's a 36% chance if you're white. Uh, there's a 56% chance if you're Hispanic. And there's a 76% chance uh, with the same grades and test scores as uh, black. Can I just also say to everybody listening, because if they haven't applied to, if they haven't taken the MCAT, haven't applied to med school, don't have family who have done those things. One of the reasons why this is such an interesting way to look at the issue of affirmative action is that the MCAT for med school, which is a standardized test, it's like the SATs for medical school, everyone, that's a huge component of admissions. And so you can look and see really how much of an advantage it is for different racial groups because the undergraduate, oh, it's just a holistic approach, is much less applicable in medical school. I can also say it's much less applicable in law school. As well, where the LSAT is a huge component at the elite schools, at least of admission. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I use that example, but it's true everywhere. Uh, I just use the data because where the data is available in every kind of college and graduate school, it's most difficult to get in as an Asian American, and in fact, it's almost like twice as hard to get in as as a, as a white person. Now, but what do people so, say to you? And by the way, we're speaking to VJ Chokal Ingam. He's an affirmative action activist, and he's also. Uh, the author of a book, Almost Black, uh, VJ. What do people say to you? What do progressives and leftists, and because I'm sure there's been a lot of a lot of fury directed at you uh, from the progressive left as a result of this? They don't like when people learn the truth about their social engineering programs. Uh, but what what do they say to you, and what do you say back when when they tell you what that you're supposed to just as a as a South Asian American, right? I mean, you're from South Asia, or you're, you know your parents are from South Asia. 
are you just supposed to be sacrificed on the altar of diversity and political correctness? Because you, you don't have the things that usually the progressive left uses to justify these policies, white privilege, be, benefiting from you know a, a society that was built because of slavery and on all those. That doesn't apply to you. So what do they say to you about why you're supposed to get treated unfairly, which is what's going on? You were being treated unfairly in the admissions process. Yeah, it's most difficult for Asian Americans. But the, the truth is, there's a lot of misinformation out there. You know, the, I think it's almost a crime that they published so many articles in the last week about affirmative action. And they never, they always forget to mention that it hurts Asian people more than anyone else. Uh, and that, that's just what the data shows. Uh, you know, the Asian American, every day I have, you know, right, but, but what, what do your Democrat friends say to you when you when you say, look, it actually hurts Asian Americans? Do they say, well, you know, you, to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs. I mean, you know, what's the what's the justification? Because because usually it's white privilege, white privilege. Right. That's why affirmative action is OK, because it disadvantages whites who usually have a privilege, which I disagree with. But nonetheless, but you're not white. So why are you supposed to suffer? What, what do they tell you is what I'm asking you, VJ. What is their argument to you? They don't believe it because they don't see the data like I do. They, it's not. Oh, so they job. just they just deny that this is what happens. We we have done as, as you know the the conservative movement in the United States has done a very poor job of informing the general public that the people who are hurt the worst by affirmative action is Asian Americans. We've done an awful job of telling that it's always a black versus white issue. They never mention that Asian Americans are the ones who are hurt the worst. Right, but they, see, okay. it undermines the narrative. All right, VJ, let, let's move on yeah. to what's going on here with the Trump administration right now. They're looking at this issue. You work in college admissions consulting right now. What do you think the administration, well, what do you think they should do? What, what should be the policy? Well, uh, as I've said many times, as I said on your program last time, Donald Trump is going to end affirmative action like Lincoln ended slavery. Uh, he will appoint code of anti affirmative action judges, and who will use the Department of Justice to go after the colleges and universities. Uh, you know, uh, because, as I said, they publicly endorse affirmative action in the Supreme Court's Fisher case. So he could effectively force them to either lose their federal funding or give up their racist affirmative action policies, uh, which, you know, is well within his power to do. Many years ago, Bob Jones University lost its federal funding uh, because it had some racially discriminatory policies. Similarly, the Trump Justice Department could do that. And I think it's a very noble, it's, you know, it's rare that we have, you know, sometimes people's, what, what people perceive as someone's greatest weakness is actually their greatest strength. President Trump is not beholden to the establishment. He's not beholden to the Ivy League universities. So he's the only one who has the courage to stand up and force them to end their racist policies. And I, I admire his courage uh, for doing that. Um, you know, another thing I kind of want to point out about it is, um, you know, Harvard is, is you know, they're, they're having parades at Harvard right now because uh, they say that suddenly the school has become, quote unquote, majority minority because 51 percent are now of Harvard are, quote unquote, minorities. And, of course, they're ignoring the whole Pocahontas phenomenon. Um, as, any, as all of you know, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren famously pretended to be a Native American to get a faculty, improve her chances of getting a faculty position at Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania. And. President Trump called her Pocahontas for doing that. Um, are, are a lot of people gaming the system in that way? Because I know exactly. people. I knew a girl with blonde hair and blue eyes who got into Stanford because she said she was a Pacific Islander. 
Because she had like a great great grandmother somewhere who lived in Hawaii well, for a year or something. Well, no, no, no. But let me tell you something. It's harder to get into Pacific Islander than it is a white person. So she may have been counterproductive in that way. Um, but uh, you know, the uh, people don't really understand the system, so they think that being an Asian American helps. It doesn't. Um, but you know, so but the, in general, the Pocahontas phenomenon is when people who are whiter than winter in Alaska. Uh, pretend to be minorities in order to take advantage of affirmative action. And you use examples, you know, someone has a Hispanic great-great-grandma. There's some rumor that there was a Native American in their family 500 years ago. So they say, like Elizabeth Warren. So they well, by the way, where does Native American fall on your scale? You said it's hardest for Asians, then white, then Latino, then well, black. Where are Native Americans on that scale? Well, the, 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 the truth is, is, you know, I'm basing my decision on data. There are just not enough Native Americans out there for me to get good data. My best guess, and this is just a guess, is it's about as hard as an African-American, but the data is so limited. I, there are so few actual Native, Native Americans yeah, yeah, in the data yeah, set. That makes sense. Uh, I mean, sadly, they most of, you know, they're just not a lot. VJ, we'll have to have you back when we see what President Trump and actually do about this issue. People can check out the book, Almost Black. You can also go to almostmac.com. Uh, and anything else, VJ, you want to able to? Um, you know, uh, I, I, you know. Last year, the Ivy League colleges more than a hundred thousand rejection letters, and I think that clients got, uh, got those letters. I don't want them to think that it's because they're not good enough. I want them to realize that uh, you know race may a factor. That it's not a powerful political message because uh, hundred thousand daggers in the heart of affirmative action and its supporters. All so right, we'll do a job of leveraging you know, frankly, on popularity of the universities. Uh, to, to, to progress President Trump. Also, I guess it's worth mentioning, you know, I am an admissions consultant for SOS Admissions and Interview SOS. I do help people in more situations, and I know my stuff. I'm good at my job. Fantastic. Vijay Chokalingam, everybody. Thank you, sir, for joining. Thanks. Team, we're going to come back. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared and ready for the buck brief. The war in Afghanistan grinds on now in its 16th year, and President Trump has said that he views the U.S. position as one that is currently not winning. And in a campaign like the one we're currently engaged in in Afghanistan, if you are not winning, you are losing. You're just losing slowly. But I wanted to take a step back for a moment and talk to you about what's really happening in Afghanistan. Remember, this is a place where the United States still has thousands of troops, may commit thousands more troops. We are still taking losses. We are losing American lives fighting for this country. And we may be losing a whole lot more if we decide under the Trump administration to send in uh, additional troops. There is no change in strategy to speak of yet. There is no reason to believe things will get better anytime soon. In fact, the trajectory of the conflict is getting substantially worse. Uh, and the Taliban is taking more and more territory under its control in, in Afghanistan. Uh, but I, I think that it's important to really understand what's happening there beyond the very simplistic uh, Taliban versus the West and the Afghan government narrative, because as is the case with so many different foreign policy problems around the world, we aren't the only 
external power with a deep interest and a lot of ties to Afghanistan. In fact, the regional players and some players far beyond the region have much deeper interests, longer standing interests in Afghanistan than we do. And as the possibility of a U.S. withdrawal becomes more and more uh, serious and, and likely, these countries are upping the ante because there will be a jockeying for power in Afghanistan if the U.S. NATO mission winds down. Now, the countries involved here are largely uh, the ones you would expect based on geography. But the big players in Afghanistan, other than us and all of our NATO allies and, of course, the Afghan government, put them aside. Right? Because the simplistic narrative, the one you always hear is it's, it's us versus them. It's the U.S., it's the Afghan government, and it's all of our European and NATO allies. Remember, Turkey has been uh, helping us in Afghanistan, too. Any NATO country that can or has been willing to send troops in the past, uh, that's a part of this. But there are all these other external players that, by the way, have been playing a very important role in Afghanistan for the entirety of our time in that conflict. Uh, the biggest one, of course, is Pakistan. And Pakistan and Afghanistan are really contiguous countries when you look at the ethnicity. Now, this is essential. The Pashtuns are an ethnic group, a tribe within Afghanistan that are about 50% of, Afghan, of Afghanistan's 30 million people. But the primary homeland of the Pashtun in Afghanistan is the southern and eastern quadrants of Afghanistan right across the border into Pakistan. So you have linguistic, ethnic, and kinship ties that the Durand Line, the border that the British came up with a long time ago between the uh, Afghans and the Pakistanis, uh, that line, and by the way, it wasn't Pakistan at the time. Uh, Pakistan came about after Indian uh, partition, uh, 1947. So Anyway, uh, the ethnicities at play here are very important to keep in mind. The main ones, the main ones you'll hear about, Pashtuns are about 50%, and Pashtuns and Pakistan are, that, that's a main connection. There's also Baloch, which is an ethnic group in Afghanistan that uh, has, well, a, a kinship ties to a part of Pakistan that is a province known as Balochistan. So you have the Baloch people, but they're a pretty small percentage overall. Less than 10% of Afghanistan. Uh, but again, there's that connection into Pakistan, and there's been cons uh, extremist ties and concerns about what's going on uh, in, in that part of Pakistan vis-a-vis -vis Afghanistan. And I know we're, we're covering a lot of different pieces here, but you know, I really want you to, want you to have a, uh, a deep understanding of the different players because then you'll see what a mess this is. And when I tell you that we need a new strategy, we really need a new strategy. And if that strategy means that we're just drawing down and we're leaving, we should understand that as a country and we should know what we are deciding. We should not just let either momentum or inertia dictate our policy in this country. So, okay, Pashtuns, primarily in southern, Pakistan, uh, southern Afghanistan, eastern Afghanistan, along the Afpak border, and the Taliban are the ethnicity, uh, are the group of the um, Pashtun. So the Pashtun ethnic group is that's what the Taliban is, is almost entirely composed of, predominantly composed of. The other main group, and it's about a third of the country, are Tajiks. Now, Tajiks, of course, you can think about Tajikistan, which borders Afghanistan. 
and, and so we, we know that there's this other ethnic group there. But keep in mind that they speak uh, Dari, which is really just a variation of Farsi, which is also called in this country, we call it Persian, but it's Farsi. It's the language, it's language, predominant language spoken in Iran. So the Tajiks have a connection, a linguistic and cultural connection to Iran. And Iran is a big player in what's going on in Afghanistan. And now what we see in recent reporting uh, is that the Iranians uh, are, in fact, uh, backing the Taliban. So as the U.S. is drawing down or preparing for a complete withdrawal from Afghanistan, you have the Iranians becoming increasingly uh, and more brazenly involved with the Taliban. Now, there is an interesting uh, an interesting separation there because Iran is a Shia Muslim country and the Taliban are a Sunni Pashtun group. So there is that. But they are willing to use each other in term for strategic Gain. So you have Iran uh, very involved, in fact, just to go. Officer in the outskirts of the city, the call from his commander warning that hundreds of Taliban fighters were headed his way. It was the start of a three week siege in October, and only after American airport was called in to end it, and the smoke cleared, did Afghan security officials risk who was behind the lightning strike. Iran. Four senior Iranian commandos were among the source of dead, Afghan intelligence officials said, noting their funerals in Iran. Many of the Taliban dead and wounded were also taken back across the nearby border with Iran, where the insurgents had been trained, village elders told Afghan provincial officials. So Iran is now sending, according to this New York Times piece, people to fight in Afghanistan, sending arms and training and assistance to the Taliban and uh, making this a more difficult and miserable situation, of course, for us and for the coalition in Afghanistan. So uh, you've got the Iranians involved. You have reports about Russian-made weapons in the hands. I talked to you about this earlier on the show a few weeks ago. Russian-made weapons in the hands of Taliban. And there are even reports that the Russians are providing more direct assistance. So you've got Pakistan involved directly with the Taliban and because of the ethnic and linguistic ties of the Pashtuns. And by the way, that's why we've never been able to end this conflict, because Pakistan is really just a rear guard area. Pakistan is a safe haven, a sanctuary for the Taliban. And that's never going to change. And as long as you have Pashtun on both sides of the border who are willing to work with and provide recruits for the Taliban, you're never going to completely eliminate that problem. So you've got Pakistan involved in Afghanistan. You've got Iran involved directly in Afghanistan. Reports of Russian involvement. And of course, if we go back in time to the origins of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and the Soviet-Afghan war, we understand that Russian ties into Afghanistan stretch back for decades. And Russia, under the when it was the Soviet Union, tried to colonize uh, Afghanistan. And that was just back in the 80s. So we're not talking about that long ago. So Russia has connections, deep connections. And keep in mind also the various stands, uh, Tajikistan, uh, Uzbekistan, um, Turkmenistan. These are places where there are deep ties to the Russians and from its former Soviet era as well. So the Russians are able to operate in these areas very effectively and work through third parties, proxies in these countries, if they so choose to get weapons and cash and whoever, who knows what else 
to the Taliban, because right now there's a sense that uh, additional pressure to the uh, additional pressure on our forces and greater and accelerating destabilization may just get us to leave. So this is why this notion that we're going to negotiate with the Taliban, by the way, for some kind of a political settlement. uh, This is this is fantasy land stuff. Even if we got the settlement, it wouldn't be worth the paper that it was written on. And then there's one more player that we should think of in the Afghan conflict, major player, and that's Saudi Arabia. Now, Saudi ties to uh, Afghanistan also are very directly uh, correlated to what happened with the Soviet-Afghan war. We know all about the Saudi money that went to the Mujahideen, and then, of course, the Saudi money that set up the madrasas in Pakistan for the refugees of the Soviet-Afghan war that led to the Taliban. So the Saudis have played a very destructive role in everything going on in Afghanistan uh, for for a long time, and they still have continued interest there. And I think it's because they, in their struggle with uh, in Saudi Arabia's struggle with Iran, remember, Saudi Arabia is the primary Sunni Arab Muslim state now in the Middle East. It is the defender, the unifier of the Sunni as a matter of policy and as a matter of, of its identity. The Iranians are the Shia defenders. And there are groups, by the way, in Iran. There is one group in particular, the Hazara, who are a, uh, a Shia Muslim group, ethnic group in uh, in Afghanistan that the Iranians have been working with in the past because of their Shia ties. But the Iranians will also work with the Taliban, even though they are Sunni, right? I know we're jumping around here. It's like Game of Thrones, Mideast, South Asia style, but it's important. So Iran continues to have, I'm sorry, Saudi Arabia as well, continues to have major interest in what's going on there because Afghanistan as a large 30 million person Sunni Muslim, not Arab, but Muslim uh, dominated state, it looks at its relationship with Afghanistan as strategic depth, and it's on Iran's border. It has, you know, if you, Iran to the west, or Iran to the east, rather, and Afghanistan to the west, they meet. So it's a place where they can apply additional pressure. So there's a feeding frenzy going on of all these other countries. It's important to keep in mind a feeding frenzy of all these other countries trying to jockey for power, trying to push and have more influence in Afghanistan. And they're going to be picking uh, proxies. They're going to be backing different factions. And do not think for one moment that the U.S. withdrawal will lead to uh, peace and a laying down of arms. If we do withdraw, I think we should be prepared for the very real possibility that the Taliban gets help from the outside to uh, make even more aggressive moves against the central government and to eventually march on Kabul. I mean, this is what we're facing in Afghanistan. We should be taking this very seriously. Really interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal on the power of incumbency and being the established player in the market. You see, this is one of those uh, counterintuitive realities in the online world that we're all increasingly forced to live in. I mean, I've I've bought I must have had 50 packages all from Amazon delivered in the last week since I moved and I'm shopping for my apartment. I mean, I need things you know, so I can continue to cook. I'll tell you about that later. Uh, I need things. And instead of going to a store, I just can do it all on my phone. It's incredible. Uh, But while all this technology is happening and you have a sense, 
that this is the the virtual marketplace is the perfect Milton Friedman approved may the best business win uh, place. That's not really necessarily the case at all. And what you're seeing is the dominance of Google, Facebook, to some degree Twitter, but less so. Uh, but Google and Facebook in particular, they're so dominant that they are able to now, and they're actively doing it, monitor any rivals for anything. I mean, this piece is called The New Copycats, How Facebook Squashes Competition from Startups. And so in this online startup world, sure, you have a great idea, but you are going to be competing very quickly against companies that have, for all intents and purposes, unlimited resources. So if you come up with a new chat app and it's getting some traction, Facebook sees you're getting traction, they have two options. They can offer you a bit of money, which especially if you're an early stage entrepreneur will sound really sexy and exciting. Uh, and, and then you get bought uh, and that can be great, but then they own you. And then you're a part of Facebook or you're part of Google. Uh, or they can do what they've been doing more and more of recently, which is they just decide, oh, this is working pretty well. Let's do our own version of this. And let's do it with the best engineering and tech talent in the world. And let's do it with unlimited resources. Who do you think ends up winning that battle most of the time? Occasionally, you'll have something like an Instagram that gets acquired for a billion dollars by Facebook. But then you'll also have, and some of you are going to be like, huh? The the uh, meerkats of the world. And some of you are like, what's a meerkat? Well, technically, a meerkat is a, uh, a small uh, carnivorous mammal that is actually a member of the mongoose family. Uh, and I believe it is, in fact, uh, Timon from Timon and Pumbaa from The Lion King. I think Timon is a meerkat. So there you go. Uh, Hakuna Matata. Remember all that? Uh, but Meerkat was also this video sharing app that was out there for a while. And I had people that were trying to get me to use it, I remember. And I remember saying, no one even knows what this Meerkat thing is. And sure enough, it looked like a great idea until Facebook decided, you know, we'll do live video chat. And then, bam, it's all over. And this is happening for any number of... Co a Amazon, Google, and Facebook are really the big three. And this is what's happening now. They have so much cash and so much uh, speed that they're able to just... Uh, they used to be really acquiring more. Now they can just go out there and crush competition. We are getting to a place where we're going to be having some very interesting conversations about the, uh, well, about antitrust law and about whether some of these internet companies are operating as, effectively operating as monopolies that are anti-competitive and that have amassed so much wealth and so much power that it is impossible to compete with them in these areas. Now, I know people will say, oh no, it's just a matter of time before the internet uh, works its magic and there'll be some other, you know, so, you, you think back, I mean, yeah, Facebook is an incredible company, it's so valuable. People forget that before there was Facebook, there was Friendster, and before there was Friendster, or around the same time, there was MySpace, and they were largely the same thing, right? I mean, they, they were giving you an online presence creating an online identity for you. And those didn't catch on. I mean, does anyone even have a MySpace profile? I don't even know if it still exists. I could probably check. Uh, but this is what's happening now. The, uh, the Just like it's great that everybody can now write a blog and can uh, has a Twitter account and can be their own little media outlet, well, that means that there are endless media outlets, which means it's very hard to, to make a living in media unless you're at a big place that has established revenue 
and is uh, going to be able to you know pay people to pay their bills, right? So making things lowering barriers to entry for uh, startup companies sounds great and it is great in a lot of ways. But keep in mind that because they're so low, so the barriers to entry are so low, you have so many uh, would bes in the space. And at the very top, there are super giants. I mean, there aren't just companies that are doing well. There are companies that are the most valuable companies in the world. And they have the ability now to monitor and to find a way to more or less copy the functionality, right? I mean, they can't copy the IP, the intellectual property, but they can copy the functionality of any of these different startups. And they can do it so quickly and so rapidly that you end up wondering, well, how could anyone ever uh, compete with these guys? And how could anyone ever come up with a new idea that may unseat these uh, incumbents? And the answer is, we'll have to see. I don't know. I I think the digital age is different in this way. You know, you you can't have a company that's across the country that the big companies never heard of that can operate with some degree of, you know, some degree of secrecy. And once it's out there on the Internet, once you're developing users, the big guys can see it and they can copy you and they can crush you. I just think it's fascinating to watch this play out. And it's also interesting. This happens in media, too. Maybe it's a discussion for another day. Um, I I said we'd talk about opioids, and and I want you more thoughts on that. And also, I'll tell you about some adventures in the life of Buck uh, after that. We'll talk to you about what's going on with my uh, latest cooking expeditions. That's how we'll close the show. But um, a serious topic, a serious conversation first. Got to talk about opioid epidemic. We'll get there in just a few. Stay with me. A lot of focus now in the media on the opioid epidemic. I spoke to you a little bit about it yesterday, and this is one that I'm putting a lot of thought into and trying to learn more about. Um, you know, I, I am somebody who, at a very young age, remember being exposed to people who were doing uh, illegal drugs and, and seeing people engaged in, in those behaviors, but because I wanted to go into the CIA, uh, and that was early on in my college career that I made that decision. Uh, I, I decided that I was just not going to do anything, any illegal drugs of any kind. Uh, and so I, it's been a, a very, very, very long time uh, since I even took a puff of anything. Uh, so I'm somebody who has seen what it does to people, um, but also I've been away from it. And I will say one of the nice uh, parts of being a government employee with a high-level security clearance is you tend to be around a lot of other people who don't uh, do any drugs, Uh, whereas many of my friends, because I grew up here in New York City, I don't know how many of you have seen the show Gossip Girl. Uh, That wasn't like my life, but there certainly was a fast set of uh, young adults, people, you know, 15 to, to 20, I'd say, who were partying very hard, and I would come across them and there was a lot of there was a lot of drug use among that crew. It's one of the reasons also why I think people who grew up with me who didn't know me very well were surprised. Like, what do you mean you went to the CIA? You know, don't they have a problem with people who do drugs? And I would say, well, yeah, but I I don't. <laughs> so and and I haven't. Uh, so that's that's why it was not a problem for me to go work for the CIA. But I've seen what it does to people's lives. I had friends, and I know for some of you listening, this is going to sound. Uh, because it is really bizarre. I mean, it's, it's really unusual. I knew people who were going to rehab for drug addiction uh, when I was in high school. 
which is pretty young. I mean, if you do look at the studies on this, you'll see that that's, that's out there and there are people who do get involved. And I'm talking about for, for hard drugs, uh, not even prescription drugs at, at that young of an age. Uh, and look, I, I think that the, the biggest reasons for this, I'd like to say it's just my personality, but I just had parents who were on, who were on the ball and, and knew what they were doing. And I had an older brother who I could always talk to about anything, who was a really good influence. And I had a little brother that I never wanted to set a bad influence for. And so that that kept me from getting into trouble, whereas I, I had a lot of friends. In fact, I don't even know if I've ever talked about this on the show, but I had two friends, uh, both of whom were, were pretty close friends. One was actually, I considered my closest friend for a number of years, die of drug overdoses. Uh, the specifics of them were never really, you know, when you, some of you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. When you are uh, friends with someone or have a family member who passes away from a drug overdose, uh, what the drugs were, was it an accidental overdose or was it something else? You don't get into that. Uh, you know, you just you're just there to be supportive and and you you try not to pry or or make the wounds any deeper than they already are. But I had a couple of friends who both died from drug use uh, and. That was pre-opioid epidemic. Now uh, I'm again. I'm, I'm at an age where I don't find myself in you know a college fraternity party where there's you know 200 people there or 150 people there, and I don't know them, and people just start doing things, and you can just choose to leave. Now I'm an adult, so I'm not around people that do anything like that. I never see it and haven't in a long time. But I do understand uh, the the. Uh, way that it can sneak up on people and become something that it ruins lives. It, it really does ruin lives. And I've seen that happen. And it, end, and it ends lives. So with the opioid epidemic, we're seeing that in the, in the tens of thousands, going to be around 60,000, I think, when they calculate all the opioid deaths for 2017, which is staggering. So uh, on, on the opioid epidemic, I, I just was thinking about this more last night. And I, I feel like we are one of, the, one of the big determinants of happiness is expectations. And I get the sense that as a, as a country, as a, as a society, uh, we are increasingly uh, exposed to a false view of happiness. Uh, I mentioned this yesterday with, you know, with social media and Facebook, and you, all you see is all your friends looking their best, everyone you know in front of their new beautiful house or with their new beautiful baby or, you know, in bathing suits in some exotic location, or it depends on what stage of life you're in, you know, or your, your, your buddy who's also retired, who just bought that boat that, you know, he's always said he wanted to get. And we're, we're, always, we're exposed to this false view of the happiness and success of others, uh, which on the one hand, I also think can be uh, corrosive because it can create envy and envy is very destructive. And it's one of the primary not to make this a political discussion, but it's it's really at the base of uh, of class warfare is envy. And I forget who it was. Uh, one of the political philosophers described. I think it was Aquinas, maybe. I know I'm just pulling Aquinas out of the air here. Uh, described envy as sadness at others doing well, and and that's a very good way to think of it because that's what it is. But we are in this society where, as I said, we're disconnected. And we see all these other people that are so successful, and they all seem like they're healthy, and everything seems so great. And so we want to escape, and we want to numb the pain. And expectations that are out of line with reality can create deep unhappiness. Uh, And I think that because our expectations are being affected by this uh, edited, 
curated, pre-selected uh, digital world that we live in now, where we, we're always hearing about, you know, perfect example of this is with Silicon Valley. You know, I have all these friends that work in tech, and you, you see, oh, Mark Zuckerberg, and it's worth $50 billion or whatever it is. Who, who even knows? You know, or some other kid who's 25, just sold his internet company for 20 million bucks, never have to work again. Well, for every story like that, there are thousands of people who emptied out their bank accounts, put their life savings into being the next Google or being the next Facebook or whatever it is, and they lost everything. And that doesn't mean that their lives are over. They just pick themselves up and start again. And in fact, some successful entrepreneurs have gone through that process. But we have far too little familiarity with the pain and loss that others feel and too great a familiarity, I think, with the pain and loss that we feel. Right? You're very aware of your health struggles, the problems you have in your family, no matter how great your family is. We all have stuff. You know, you're, you're acutely familiar with your own disappointments and your own insecurities. And certainly I am. And I'm somebody who comes in and speaks, uh, speaks for three hours at a time and uh, is opening up a part of myself. And whenever you do that, you also realize you're exposing uh, you're exposing, you know, are, are, you, are you good enough at this? Are you smart enough at this, Buck? Are you bringing enough to the table for people? Um, are, are you connecting? Are, are you distant? Are you, you know, this is the, the other side of, of performance of any kind, which is that most people that have to perform are uh, become somewhat obsessed. There's a healthy level of obsession in a babble with, how am I doing? Am I doing a good enough job? But you're also very then aware of your failings and your flaws. And uh, that's, I think, on a societal level right now, that's kind of a psychological pandemic. I think we all see this false reality that other people are putting out there. Of, and, and wherever you are, and I know, I mean, it's amazing because I'm speaking to you and it always is, I feel as though I am speaking to my friends and many of you over the years have become my friends. But whether you're listening in Alaska, California, Mississippi, North Carolina, Ohio, wherever you are across the country, uh, this is, I think, true in, in America today, that you have this exposure to um, you have this exposure to the success of others that's even an inflated success. And that then forces you to question your own failures more. And this brings me then to the opioid epidemic, which is I think people are looking to escape. They're looking to escape pain, yes. And opioids, of course, the, you know, they work on the receptors in the brain that have to do with pain, morphine and heroin. And these are all classes of opioid or types of opioid drugs. But fentanyl and these chemical variants are even more potent, even more powerful. But why do we have so many people that want to escape and want to deal with the, the, the pain. And I think a lot of it is the pain of disappointment. Uh, and I think the, the ease with which people can get these drugs and the potency of them to escape all fear, all resentment, all envy, uh, all sense of insufficiency is, is very seductive for people. And once you add into that the biological chemical components of this, where you have an incredibly potent substance that literally makes your brain and body think you need more of it and you want more of it. That's how we have a situation where not only tens of thousands are dying, but how many more tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives are ruined as a result of this current uh, opioid epidemic. Uh, so 
that's that's just my those are my thoughts on on how this is becoming the problem that it is. And I know there's there's a cartel aspect to it, and you know heroin coming up from uh, Mexico and. Uh, the prevalence of these really designed opioid drugs that can be made in facilities that don't require growing and outdoor uh, outdoor exposure, so it's harder to find them. I, those are all other aspects of this too. But really, at at the at the root of it, I, I'm wondering and trying to get at why do people make this very dangerous, very destructive choice? And I think it is. I really do believe it's it's to escape um, and it's to get away from pain and. Some cases it's physical. I know some people have chronic back pain and they start taking prescription painkillers and then they move on from there to uh, other drugs because they've become addicted, you know, other painkiller drugs because they've become addicted. So that's really mostly physiological. And there's a whole, I have a, I have a whole bunch of theories and I'm not a doctor or a physical therapist or anything, but theories on why we all have so much physical pain that we're dealing with as well, which I, I think that's also a, a pandemic unto itself. But the plague of, uh, of unhappiness and disaffectedness that is resulting in, I think, many people turning to these incredibly potent, dangerous drugs is, is a modern phenomenon. We, we are not as focused now on just survival. We're not as focused on just keeping our family safe and sound. There is this focus on this in this country of everybody has to be a superstar. Everybody has to be the best. Everyone has to be a hero. And... You don't spend enough time or see enough of everyone is struggling. Everyone has their problems. Uh, everyone feels like there are ways in which they could be better and ways in which they've never worked hard enough to improve. And it is, in fact, those places, those areas, those thoughts that in many ways bind us most together. Uh, we are bound together by our suffering and our difficulties and our frustrations. It's, in fact, in many ways what makes us human, sure, Kindness and consideration and loyalty and honor. I mean, those are the, the, the best human traits. But if you're looking for a way to feel how, feel how other people are feeling and sympathize with the other side, uh, sympathize with your fellow human beings, it's actually, it is in suffering and it is in pain and, and, uh, and disappointment and heartbreak. That's where we can all look at each other and say, I'm right there with you. Um, and there's not nearly enough, I think, of a uh, a connectivity there and there's much more of a sense of you know I'm not good enough and and my life isn't what it should be and you know I, I don't feel a connection to God I know I don't talk about religion much on the show but I think that's a big part of it too and so people are looking to escape looking to escape psychological pain is every bit as real as physical pain and they're looking to escape it that's my th- sense on that um, I will hit a quick break here I'll be uh, right back to him stay with me Last night in my in my new apartment where I actually have, I know you, some of you are chuckling. Chuckling, it's all right. I've I've chosen to live here in New York City, my my hobbit sized homes in New York City. I had a stove before, but it was really a single burner, and it was very European. It was like, oh, do you want to like make a little bit of, uh, you know, like uh, you could cook yourself like one egg. Like maybe you could throw two in there, but you don't want to overdo it because then the the little tiny flame, it's like a little bit. It's once cooked the egg, and you'll have like the raw runny egg, and it looks like the stuff that comes from your nose, and is very gross. So I wasn't really able to cook for realsies, and uh, I I really like cooking because um, I've 
finally thrown myself into it and forced myself to be the big the big difference for me was being willing to fail meaning that i've learned to keep like frozen chicken tenders in the fridge which by the way i love frozen i eat frozen chicken tenders all the time i mean the two things that i always have on hand at home are dark dark well three things dark chocolate whole milk and frozen chicken tenders in fact i eat them together sometimes and molly's like what are you doing and i'm like babe it's chicken and chocolate it's amazing so anyway uh i i was able to finally uh, convince myself that even if I got the ingredients, got the food, and just made a total mess of it, uh, it was worth it to try. And I've never really been able to do a pan-seared steak properly on a stovetop. I know some of you are like, Buck, come on. What are you, what are you talking about? What are you, a communist? You got to sear your steak out on the grill like, like a real American. And I agree. But unfortunately, in New York City, a propane grill in a private residence is like a $10,000 fine. So can't really do that. Um, I Stovetop, though, actually can work really well if you know what you're doing. But you always have to have the right tools and you have to finish it in the oven. So last night, I got a big T-bone steak, thick. I mean, it was like inch and a half thick steak, maybe two inches. And I just, you know, Molly's gone for work for a few days. So I had the place to myself. Oh, no, I smoked this place out, man. I mean, I was cooking... And, you know, I was sitting there, maybe rocking out to some Fox News in the background, neither here nor there. And I was just cooking up a storm in here. And I set off the smoke alarm three times, obvi. And and I was just going wild on the steak. I got the rosemary in there. I even threw a little butter on the side. By the way, the key uh, is that once you've got the sear going on both sides, and it's it's got a nice brown, if you're doing it on stovetop, nice brown crisp to it. You know, you get that sear. Uh, before you finish in the oven, which is the key step that I had not done in the past, which is why I had cut into my fair share of cold center, purple center steaks that were seared on the outside and like raw on the inside. Yeah, I made some mistakes back in the day. I'm, I'll, I'll admit it. Um, but once you get to the place before you put it in, in the oven, you throw butter. And I mean, liberal use of butter in cooking is just, in my opinion, always a good idea. And then some uh, sprigs of rosemary, and it was just, I mean, I ate, the, I ate the whole thing. It was phenomenal. I actually posted it on Instagram. I was very proud of myself. First time I've ever really done a steak, a thick T-bone steak. I, could, I, I had done flank steak before, uh, which is thinner, and you can pound it. and you know. But, but I, the first time I'd ever done a real T-bone. So I was very proud of myself. It was like, I feel like I'm an adult now. I'm 35 years old. I, I, at 35, I feel like I'm where I thought I'd be at 25 when I was in my late teens. This is what I've realized in life. Although I assumed I'd be working for some corporation. I never thought I'd be in conservative media. And here I am, thanks to all of you listening and downloading the show. So anyway, I, uh, I cooked steak like a boss last night. I was very proud of myself. Uh, if you want to see the photos of Buck Sexton on Instagram, you can follow me on Instagram there. It's basically just photos of me, Tallulah, my parents' dog, French Bulldog, and, uh, and Molly, my girlfriend, and you know other things. Me at Fox News sometimes. So yeah, if you want to follow me on Instagram, by all means. Please do. Uh, I've seen some people giving ratings. I really do appreciate it. It's free. It takes you 10 seconds on iTunes. Uh, if you can just give me a quick rating for the podcast, I would really appreciate that. And also just download it. It doesn't take up much space on your hard drive or on your phone, but click subscribe. Buck Sexton with America Now is how you do it. And look, we're going into the fall here. Um, we're going to be thinking about how the show is done this year. And the most important thing that any of you who really care about what I'm doing here and quite frankly, I want this to continue to be a successful show and grow. All you got to do is just tell one friend, get one person to listen to the show who hasn't before. And 
we'll just keep growing and growing and the Freedom Hut will get bigger and bigger and have more impact. So I, as always, uh, honor, a pleasure and a privilege to have you here with me in the hut. Uh, thank you so much for your time. BuckSexton.com. We've got stories posted up there all throughout the day. And BuckSexton.com slash store if you want to get some gear. Uh, so with all that, I can't believe it's already going to be Thursday coming up here soon. Excited to join you for that and more. Until then, Shields High.